Candy from Strangers by Mark Coggins is original, smart, and good to the last page, says best-selling author and executive producer of the hit TV series Bosch, Michael Connolly. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 27, Flashpoint, with special guest appearance by Monica Mappa as herself. I dreamed I was in an all-night diner eating a solitary meal when the rest of my teeth fell out. They tumbled from my mouth to the table like so many thrown dice. The waitress, who was Monica Mappa in a stained and faded uniform, appeared at the booth. She swept the teeth up without comment and brought them back in a doggy bag. For later, she said, and gave me a knowing look. I was spared further psychotrauma by the jarring ring of the telephone. I hadn't replaced the phone on the nightstand after Tom and Jerry ransacked the place, so I slithered off the bed to the floor tracing the phone line from the wall to a place midway under the bed frame before I located the handset. I rolled onto my back and fumbled the receiver to my ear. Hello, I lisped, missing the two front teeth that were out of my mouth soaking in a glass in the bathroom. I hope I didn't wake you, said a tough male voice. Not at all. Morning yoga. I just finished with the upward-facing dog when you called. Lieutenant Jack Kittredge chuckled derisively. Is that the position where you get on all fours and lift your leg in the air? Something like that. What can I do for you, Lieutenant? It's more what I can do for you. I'm calling to let you know you lost another client. I pressed the clammy plastic of the receiver closer to my ear. I wasn't aware I had another client to lose. That's what he told us anyway. I'm talking about Wesson. You're calling to tell me he gave you the slip between my office and the station? Kittredge chuckled again. No, but he lawyered up immediately. Got that shyster Swartz involved, who had a special bail hearing set that afternoon. We ended up having to kick him on a $50,000 bail and didn't get a word out of him, except that you were on the case and were going to prove him innocent. I told you, I never signed him as a client. And the judge must not have thought very much of your charges if you let him go for 50 k Yeah, that's true. But when we woke his honor up at four this morning to get a warrant to search Wesson's house, he seemed to have changed his mind. Maybe you should have got the search warrant first to build a better case. He grunted noncommittally. It doesn't matter now. Wesson did a swan dive off the east tower of Saints Peter and Paul Church in Washington Square. The pastor found him smeared across the concrete steps in front at about 1.20. Seems the good father was making final rounds after midnight mass, and he stumbled over the body. I felt my jaw hinge open. You're saying he's dead? No, I'm saying he has to carry his brains around in a jelly jar. Of course he's dead. 
I levered myself off the floor and sat on the edge of the mattress. Let me get this straight, Kittredge. He committed suicide by jumping off a church tower in the middle of the night? That's right. Turns out he lives about two blocks away. I squeezed my eyes shut and rubbed the sleep from them. There's more to this, isn't there? You're leaving something out. You mean about the note? What about it? It was pretty simple. All it says was, I'm sorry. The interesting bit was that it was tattooed on his left arm. And when we got the warrant to go through his house, surprise, surprise, we found a full set of tattoo equipment, sketches of the butterfly tattoo he'd done on Carolyn Stockwell, Monica Mappa, and the Japanese girl, digital pictures of all the finished tattoos on his computer, and copies of the defaced web pages from Carolyn and Monica's site. I'll bet you found more than pages from Carolyn and Monica's site. Kitchurch made a growling noise. That's right, smart guy. He also had the Japanese girls. And if you know that, it means you've been sticking your nose further into this in spite of my earlier warning. Well, it all stops now. I'm calling the Stockwells to let them know we found their daughter's kidnapper, and then I'm filing the paperwork. Is that before or after you call the paper to come and take your picture? Screw you, Reardon. Just be sure you don't do any talking of your own to the media. That's the real reason for this call, isn't it? To keep me from contradicting your story. It's not a story, and there's nothing to contradict. We've got Wesson dead to rights, and it's not in your interest or anyone else to say different. I just hope Carolyn Stockwell confirms it all when she wakes up, I said. But I was talking to dead air. I hung up the phone and got showered and dressed. I wasn't sure what to make of Kittredge's news. If I could take what he said at face value, it sounded pretty compelling. But the mere fact that he'd called made me think he was worried about something. I was pondering this while munching through a bowl of my favorite breakfast cereal, Captain Crunch with Crunchberries, when someone knocked on the door. The someone hadn't bothered to buzz downstairs to be let in, which in my experience meant cops or salespeople. It turned out to be cops, but not the one I expected. Standing at the threshold when I pulled the door open was Quentin Stockwell. The transformation was frightening. He looked sober, serious, and motivated, every bit the old Stockwell I remembered. Did you hear the San Francisco cops think they got the guy who hurt Carolyn? He said without preamble. Yeah, I said. I got a call. He bowled his way past me into the room. They're full of crap. I pulled the door closed and lounged against the arm of the sofa. I'm not saying you're wrong, exactly, but what makes you so certain? Stockwell looked around like he was on a realtor's tour. Jesus Christ, this place is every inch the dump it was the last time I was here. And you still got that Fred Flintstone audio equipment. Emily Post says sharing your home with guests is one of life's greatest joys. And Ben Franklin says fish and guests stink after three days. I'm just getting a head start. He marched over to the card table and pulled out one of the folding chairs to sit down. You got any coffee? I went to the kitchen to pour us two cups from the pot I had going. I set one in front of him and pulled up a chair across the table. You were just about to explain why the SFPD is full of crap. Stockwell looked down and squeezed the cup in two hands like he was trying to crush it. Let me tell you a little story, he said after a moment. Late yesterday evening, I was with Carolyn in a room at the hospital. I'd fallen asleep in a chair. 
I heard a noise or sensed a movement that woke me. I was pretty groggy and it was dark in the room, but I saw a figure approaching Carolyn's bed. I shouted and the figure turned and ran out the door. I followed, but he was already going down the stairwell by the time I got into the hallway. I called hospital security and the Union City cops. No dice. He got clean away. That doesn't surprise me. My impression of the security and visitors' procedures at the hospital is they're pretty lax. Did you get any kind of look at him? Mainly from the back. He wasn't particularly tall. I'd say no more than 5 feet 10, but he was massively built. He's almost certainly some kind of weightlifter. He was wearing a watch cap, so I couldn't see his hair. But here's the scary part. There was just enough illumination from the status lights on the monitors connected to Carolyn to see what was in his hands when he approached the bed. It looked like a hypodermic needle. The room suddenly seemed very quiet. I heard the drip from a leaky faucet in the bathroom. Do you think it's possible that he put Carolyn in the coma? I asked. Bunches of muscles tighten into Ignatius lumps at the corners of his jaw. Then, with visible effort, he relaxed. That's my guess. And when the drugs he gave her the first time didn't kill her, he came back to finish the job. What time of night was this? It was a little after four o'clock, well after this Wesson character took the dive off the church steeple, if that's what you're driving at. Yes, it was. That means this mystery man at the hospital could have also helped Wesson with his suicide, not to mention planning all the tattoo stuff that they found at his house. Did you tell your story to Kittredge when he called? He nodded and took a sip of coffee. He grimaced. Where did this come from? A drip pan in a crematorium? Yes, I told Kittredge. He said if I really saw the guy, it must be unrelated, and then he asked me if I had been drinking. Had you? Stockwell reddened and started to point an accusatory finger at me. He checked himself and dropped his hand to the table. No. I've been off the sauce since we last spoke. I realized I couldn't do anything for Carolyn unless I stopped. I nodded and took a slug of the coffee. It tasted fine to me. How is she doing? Stockwell pressed his lips together and then spoke in a quiet voice. The doctors say it's 50-50. She might come out of the coma or she might not. The longer she stays in it, though, the less likely it is that she'll come out. Did they ever figure out what kind of drug it was? GHB, one of the date rape drugs. He nodded. Given what happened, are you you doing anything to prevent another midnight visit? Stockwell shifted angrily in the chair. Don't tell me my business. I moved her and I've got her under 24-hour guard. Let me ask you another question then. Why are you here? I'm here because we goddamn hired you, that's why. Maybe you don't remember exactly what it was you told me the last time we spoke. You bounced me off the case. If I had anywhere else to go, Reardon, believe me, I would. But you're the only one who knows all the players and the full background. I don't have the time or the luxury of starting from scratch. Besides which, you took a big fat retainer from Ellen and as far as I can tell, you've done very little to earn it. I shrugged. I haven't done so very bad for you, Stockwell. I found out about the website and the whole business with the tattoos. And yesterday, I learned that Carolyn definitely had a boyfriend. What do you mean? 
I explained what I'd learned from Odile and Chris about Cricket and his chirps on the website. If Wesson was killed and then framed for the murders, I said, it was probably this Cricket character who was very likely the person who came to Carolyn's room last night. Stockwell shook his head. I don't know how you do it. This is exactly what I meant when I said you bounce around the landscape like a pinball in an arcade game. You rely on gay computer hackers and lesbo shrinks, and yet you still manage to find out things and link them up. That comment says more about you than it does about me. Maybe. But there's a limit to how far your undisciplined right-brain methods will go. He stood from the table. You know what you should be doing now? What you should have been doing from the moment you got a street name for this guy? I thought about it for a moment. Going around to all the tattoo shops in the area, asking if anyone's heard of him? That's right. And checking to see if anyone recognizes the style of tattoos wouldn't hurt either. He pushed the chair under the table. Come on. What? Right now? Yes, right now. Pin on your diaper and let's go. I pushed back from the table and went to the bedroom to retrieve my jacket and a folder of website printouts Chris had made for me. Stockwell stood by the door holding it open. As I came up to him, shrugging on the jacket, he wheeled and landed a punishing uppercut to my gut. I folded like a canvas awning. He said, I may have lost my job, but I haven't given up on my family. Stay away from my wife. If you want to be tattooed, pierced, or otherwise manipulated in San Francisco, you'll do best to head to one of four parts of town, North Beach, the Mission, the Castro, or the Hate. We started with North Beach in the Mission District because of their connections to Wesson and Monica Mappa, but struck out pretty quickly. None of the tattoo artists in the half dozen or so parlors we visited recognized Cricket or his work. The Castro District was next, but Stockwell flat out refused to get out of the car. In truth, there was little point, because the gay community appeared to prefer piercings to tattoos, and neither of the shops I visited even had a tattoo artist on call that day. I did ask one of the body manipulation professionals to inscribe a picture postcard of a pierced body part to Stockwell, but for some reason, he didn't appreciate the gesture. That left the hate, or hate Ashbury as it's called whenever people speak nostalgically of hippies, flower power, the 1960s, and the summer of love. The fact of the matter is, the hate has as much to do with the 60s today as the Fantasyland Castle in Disneyland has to do with the Bavarian Castle on which it's modeled. The only remaining artifacts from the time when the Grateful Dead, Janis Joplin, Jefferson Airplane, and Timothy Leary roved the landscape are the occasional head shop and the incidental Tibetan jewelry store. Far more common are boutiques, vintage clothing shops, military surplus outlets, restaurants, and women's shoe stores that all seem to feature wacky footwear created by gluing three-inch cork heels onto bowling shoes. And tattoo parlors. Plenty of tattoo parlors. There were so many, in fact, that after parking Stockwell's SUV in the Keezer Stadium parking lot at the edge of Golden Gate Park, we decided to separate and divide the work between us. He took the parlors on the south side of Haight Street, and I took the ones on the north. I got lucky in the first one I walked into. 
It was called Skin Furniture, and it was housed in a shotgun building with a neon sign in the window and hundreds of tattoo designs papering the walls inside. Standing behind a glass case of studs and other piercing jewelry was a rabbity-looking guy with a tentative goatee and a faint odor of fried egg emanating from his person. He was refilling the business card holder on top of the case, a human skull painted bright red with its jaw prized open and a rictus of astonishment when I came up. He gave me a tepid smile that was less a sign of welcome than an attempt to mask the confusion my presence had engendered. Apparently, I didn't fit the profile of his usual clientele. I said, I'd like to get a tattoo. He nodded. Have you, um, have you ever gotten one before? No, I said cheerfully. Never have. But I've got a particular design I'd like to use. I pulled out the picture of the butterfly tattoo from Mika, the Japanese girl. Can you do that for me? I'd like to get it on my butt. His eyes made the round trip from the photo to my backside several times, and then he reluctantly took the picture from my hands. He held it about two inches from his face. This is good work. I don't know if any of the artists here could do something in exactly that style. We've got plenty of other butterfly flash, though. Flash? He waved at the designs covering the walls behind him. Flash is what we call the patterns we use for common tattoos. We must have about 50 butterfly designs to pick from. I really had my heart set on that butterfly. Do you know where I might get somebody to do it for me? He set the photo down on the counter, then angrily pushed up the sleeves of his sweater. A tattoo of a winged eyeball appeared at me from one forearm, and a creature with a spider's body and a woman's head from the other. Did Stan send you here to hassle me, man? Who's Stan? Stan Zimbler, the owner of Osiris. I gave him my best befuddled tourist look. I'm not following. He sighed. Okay, sorry. I guess I was being paranoid or territorial or something. Osiris is a tattoo shop down the street. Stan Zimbler owns it, and lately he's been churning out a lot of killer tattoos in a new style. This looks a lot like some of the new flash I've seen in his shop. Does Mr. Zimmler ever go by the name Cricket? Now it was his turn to look befuddled. No, man, and I wouldn't call him an insect to his face if I were you. He's a tough bastard. Rhino would be a better nickname for him. I picked up the photo from the counter. Thanks for the advice. Where did you say I could find his shop? He threw up his hands dismissively. Northwest corner of Hayden Masonic, but don't be expecting Stan Zimler to draw any butterflies on your ass cheek. Smiling, I turned from the counter and hurried out the door. I wanted to get to Stockwell before he went into Osiris so we could brace Zimler together. I crossed Hayden and jogged up Stockwell's side of the street, ducking my head into two other parlors as I headed toward Masonic, but he must have been in and out of them already. I spotted a sandwich sign on the sidewalk about a half block up, with a picture of a squinting, mean-looking feral holding a crook and flail crossed over his chest. I stepped up my pace and arrived at the sign just as the door of the tattoo parlor swung open. Stockwell came sailing out onto the sidewalk, landing on all fours by the sign. The door slammed shut. Clutching his elbow with one hand and biting his lip in pain, he stood to look at me. I quoted from Golden Dawn of the New Epiphany, Falling hurts least, those who fly low. Eat shit, Reardon, he affirmed. 
You have been listening to Candy from Strangers, a book Mystery Scene Magazine described as crackling and whip smart. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.